Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very last Demystifying Science episode of 2021. We have a lot of excellent conversations that are already on the books for 2022, so come back often and tell all of your friends. Today, though, we have a very special treat, a conversation with Forrest Bishop about the Pleistocene murders, a whodunit theory that seeks the cause of the megafaunal extinction that rocked the planet during the most recent period of glaciations from about 2.5 million years ago to 10,000 years ago. While most theories, including a recent meta-analysis from Tel Aviv University, point the finger at increasing populations of hungry humans, Forrest proposes that this ignores a crucial global change that occurred over the course of the Pleistocene, a massive decrease in carbon dioxide levels. In the Pleistocene murders, he proposes that falling carbon dioxide led to the dominance of C4 plants, those who can flourish at relatively low partial pressures of CO2. This evolutionary advantage allowed grasslands to dominate the globe, which in turn led to a decrease in the caloric content of the trophic foundation of the world's ecosystems, making them incapable of supporting the enormous animals that were present on the earth before this decrease. It's an excellent story that binds together geology, chemistry, biology, and even a little bit of spirit as humans have an emergent role on the planet that we get to at the very end of the conversation. You're going to love it. Before we get to the show, I have a request. If you can spare a few dollars a month, go right now and join our Patreon at Demystify Sci. The world is full of those who will tell you to trust the settled science, and as far as we can tell, we're the only ones out there making media that shows just how many possible explanations there are for a given set of data. But we need your financial support so that we can keep writing, researching, and interviewing. Consider it a donation for the health and wealth of the future. As little as the price of a single cup of coffee, $3 a month, will make or break our ability to keep the show going, so please consider joining our Patreon at Demystify Sci. In any case, see you in the new year, and for now, please welcome Mr. Forrest Bishop, author of The Pleistocene Murders. Welcome to the Solstice edition of Demystifying Science. We have with us today Mr. Forrest Bishop, and Forrest came to our attention because he is a natural philosopher of the classical tradition, and he wrote a series of blog posts called The Pleistocene Murders, which ask and answer the question, why did the megafauna of the planet all seem to go extinct around the time of the last ice age, despite the fact that they had survived previous glaciation periods. And he went through the records, he connected a bunch of biological, archaeological, and geological pieces, and came up with quite an interesting story that he's here to tell us about. So, welcome, Mr. Forrest Bishop. Thank you, Shiloh and Anastasia. Anastasia, yeah. <laughs> That's a little harder one. So, Anastasia. indeed. Do you like Shiloh or Michael or... Yeah, uh, <laughs> those are all three degrees of formality. Uh, uh, Dr. So I don't know Hot how well we know each other, but you know, <laughs> you can call me Michael Shiloh. You can call me Dr. Michael Shiloh Delay if it pleases you. <laughs> Man, I feel like I should have like a daytime TV show with that kind of a name. But. All right, dude. Yeah, tell us about it. how'd you? Why'd you get into this? This is this is. I love your blog. Um, it it absolutely was one of the most beautiful. Uh, pieces of theory that I've read in recent times, especially you know, it, you, you know, you're not you're not coming out of the academy, which is kind of cool, 
And yeah, I just thought it was a really transformative read. And, you know, I know totally outside of the scientific realm, but I just, I loved how it culminated in this sort of purposeful place for human beings, which is great because, you know, in this super automated uh, virtual universe, it's kind of, uh, it's tricky to see people valuing purpose. And so I dug that a lot. But uh, yeah, man, tell us how you got into this. Yeah, and that that is, of course, a bold claim, but then so is the claim that humans are a cancer on the planet and evil mm. things. So this is kind of a counter argument to that as well. Um, how I got into it um, is I've, I study lots of different fields, lots of different fields, and I've always been interested in the, the, the big animals of the past, as we all, you had, you had your little dinos, plastic dinosaurs, right? When you were kids. Yeah, big animals are crazy. You had those, right? The little plastic dinosaur sets. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, these huge, huge, just wondrous animals that we never got to see because they all died right before we showed up. It's like, oh, man. <laughs> especially the big especially the big furry ones from what i understand right it was uh there, there was basically giant oversized versions of all of our favorite you know big big ranging animals like the buffalo were twice as big and, you know the, there was elephants furry elephants everywhere kinds of until very recently right this was like twelve thousand. Yeah. very recently 12,000 peer-reviewed years ago. Ah. And what I mean by that is nobody really knows, you know, uh, the datings of these things, how long ago it was. Some people think it was much, much more recent. And I mm. put a line in, in there in one of the uh, parts about, and the comet hit, and the, it hit the Canadian ice cap vaporized it part of the water went into the upper atmosphere enough to make rain for say 40 days and nights that sounds very biblical <laughs> i'm saying there is that we may have a collective cultural memory of that event which is supposed to be eleven thousand eight hundred years ago but it's hard to see how a story like that could be carried on for so many thousands of years so that that's a bid for moving that date forward, but it, it, in in the end, it doesn't really matter. The dating doesn't matter. It's the sequence of events right. that that I, I I'm painting this picture, and of course, I'm cherry picking and being selective. So it's this isn't we never know the full truth. It's never one hundred percent. We can never be certain of everything about something that's so elaborate and so far in the past. Right, and putting things together into this picture that look like they fit with near certitude, but as good as we can ever be, we're finite mortal beings. Here we are. But how right on. So, I've I've made I've I've looked at that too because it is such a mystery, and over the years, ponder those questions like we do the different things you guys do all the different things a little bit on this a little bit on that. And uh, maybe 10 years ago, I came up with this idea that Earth's gravity had increased a little bit. Well, there's another theory in that, in that direction that we, were, that we were curious about, which we haven't actually been able to get access to the guy. But his, because I, I saw in the blog that you mentioned it, 
a couple of times. Expanding. Is uh, the the thick atmosphere theory, which is the fact that like the the Earth's atmosphere has become less dense, and so it would appear that gravity has increased, but in reality, the atmosphere has just become less buoyant. That one doesn't work. Interesting. How come? It doesn't work for numerous physical reasons. Hmm. You can make the atmosphere thicker, but to, to, to get it to the thickness that a, a thing like a brachiosaur or a, 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 you know, a, a, even, a, even a, a T-Rex could use the buoyancy force to counter the gravity, it would have to be, you know, as dense as water. That's, that's the that's the argument. Yeah, yes, it is. It's a pretty good page, actually. I recommend it. It's like this guy's name is David Esker. Uh, he, I think, he wrote it while he was at university. I've, he was a yeah. I've read it long ago. There's there's another guy that thinks the Earth used to be oblong, so that the the gravity was less. And it was like egg shaped. And there's all these different theories about how these dinosaurs could exist, which is off topic for what we're talking about. So I waved at it a couple times. But I did. I said giant dinosaurs eating the giant leaves, but I didn't say why because it was it's too far off topic for. Well, I think that it's it links into the story because I think that the story is the idea that the Earth changes dramatically, and these are massive shifts, and there's a lot that we don't know about the past, and the stories that we tell are in many ways incomplete as a mechanism for being able to give a full explanation. Yes, absolutely. It's, we we just have we're, we're trying to look at this vast panoply, this panorama of the past, and always it, it's like a pointillist picture with not very many points. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> What's your? You're like you have ten points. Connect them as any way that you wish. And, that, and honestly, that's why science is a work in progress at all times. Because as soon as you get a few more points, things look a little differently. In fact, and, I, can, I can see it right behind you in your background picture. There's just some points. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. What is spaceship it? isn't. Ah, uh, it's just a picture out the window of the spaceship. Oh, okay, cool. Right on. Anyway, yeah. So it basically, the 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 theory was constructed because you started looking into the past. You started realizing that there are pieces that are not necessarily explained or explained in ways that you don't necessarily uh, it's think. And other people have tried. It's been called the Fermat's last theorem of paleobiology. I mean, I want to add. Can I just add one thing that the the it's very very strange because there was. There was several of these, there's dozens of these glaciation periods and the animals survived through them just fine. And then all of a sudden in this last one, the animals disappear. This is what makes it so very bizarre. And it can't totally be blamed on humans because if I understand it correctly, the Australian hominids coexisted with the large megafauna for something like 30,000 years before that, you know, before this extinction event. So what's going on? You can't blame it on the humans. You can't blame it on the climate. I mean, at least the cycling of cold and hot. So that's what I just wanted to recontextualize how wild it is that all of a sudden they just disappeared 12,000 or whatever, yeah. however many years ago. Yeah. And, and when you say dozens, that's, that's a point of contention too. First, there was one ice age in the 19th century, and then there was two, and then there was four. So right now there's just like they keep changing the um, periods of, you know, what, when was the Pleistocene? It used to be 5 million years, now it's 2.8. They, they totally. 
Mm-hmm. See, everything keeps, it's always in a state of flux because... Well, this is only 100, and 100, 150 years old. Like the first time they even yeah. thought of an ice age was like 150 years ago, I think. Like they just, these people started looking at these moraine fields and were just like, I, yeah, yeah. you know, and I think their ancestors had been telling them that these were from some sort of ice period. And everybody just wrote it off as like, ah, it's just like folk tale sort of thing. Okay. And, and uh, you know, so recently, you know, this became actually a sort of, academic idea you know like yeah. very very it got it got some uh, got suit and pants you know like a, it got, <laughs> got a nice dress and uh that is an interesting memory i was talking about noah's the, the flood stories which are worldwide all the cultures have a flood story and a lot of them are very similar where one man and a woman they, they land on this log and they float along and they restart the whole culture I mean, the flood stories really make sense because you're located in you're located in the Pacific Northwest, so are we. And the sort of the central story of the Pacific Northwest is the Missoula floods, and this is a story that was completely not accepted by academic uh, geologists for a really long time until J. Harold Bretz, who was, or I think J. Harlan Bretz, he basically came through and he he on on the 30s, like on foot. Yeah, traced the landscape and was like board and yeah and uh, scab lands. Yeah, exactly. And all these astonishing things. But right. I didn't know that the Indians had that. In, you're saying that the Indians had that in their legends of of the flood. They had a flood. I mean, I think. Well, I was talking about the Northern European uh, indigenous people. Actually, like they they basically all had. They were telling people. I can't. I don't want to say exactly where, but I want to say it was in the Alps or that might. It, I, what, what were the mountain ranges uh, in Norway as well? I'm not too familiar with the geography there, but those people had been telling the town, the city people for hundreds of years that there was the glacier, glaciers basically that caused the moraine fields that caused these big uh, polished boulders to show up. And all of the people, the academics in this in town were just like, you're crazy. Those are formed by droplets of lava or something like that. And so, Fantastic. so that, then, that's yeah. That's bid for a more recent happening than 11,008 because how, do, how how can a legend like that pass down through so many thousands of years but it i mean i guess that's what song and story are for i mean there's yeah. yeah like i mean it makes sense to me that you you would be in a place and you know your 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 family and your all the way back has always been in this place and there's always somebody who asks the question of like hey how'd that get there and you're like well you know somebody once told me that it was like this and because I think that the question of how did this come to be this way is a really, really human question in a way that like I don't see like I don't see my cat asking the question of how did things come to be this way? And so I doubt that the cats would have generational oral history. Maybe they do. I don't know. But it does seem like a human thing to be always asking the question. And the thing that makes science so interesting is the fact that we're attempting to be like, well, what is a robust answer to that question? Counter argument. And mm-hmm. yeah, when, when, when you rest, <laughs> all right, is that yes, it, yes to everything you say. And especially when you have an isolated group, so you, they're not distracted by this and that and the other and forget their core culture. But there's the, the game of telephone problem, mm-hmm. the broken link problem. Game of telephone, you know this, you know, you, you go around the ring and by the time the original message, and by the time it gets back, it's something completely different. 
as, as you're telling it from one person to the next. That's one problem. But for a simple story, yeah, there used to be ice here. It's, it's a it's a clean message. So so it, it's not extremely susceptible to the telephone problem, but it is still. And the other problem is the broken link, which is it only takes one generation to forget the story and not pass it on. But generations aren't isolated. There's always overlap, right? There's going to be, you know, different ages of people. and There's going to be some, like, crazy old woman who lives in the mountains or, or some hermit that lives in the forest, and they'll be the ones that are the keepers, and someone seeks them out. And uh, like, hey, We did a deep dive on this, actually. We made a movie about it at our uh, YouTube channel. The idea of, of, like, cultural transmission of knowledge is a whole can't like a whole other can of worms uh but if anybody wants to check that out we did do a movie on it and it's out our demystifying science youtube show. yeah okay but anyways yeah back to the actual story for what caused it and why and why is the sort of fun part but what caused it what, what's your what do you think maybe you can just outline the theory for everybody real quick before we even get into this okay yeah okay what, what the heck are we talking about okay yep. <laughs> yeah yeah, all of these big animals, they died in the ice, ice age, and nobody could figure out why. And, and we've known about it for maybe two centuries or less, about the ice age and about all these massive animals. And a lot of different people have looked at and tried to solve this mystery. It's, it doesn't make sense why all these beautiful creatures just up and croaked one day. So there's... It's come down to two major competing theories. One is that the climate change because of the ice and the cold and the dry weather. And that's one theory. The, there's two main theories. The other one is that humans killed them all off. And there's problems with both of these ideas. Massive problems, especially with the human hunting theory. It's, it, it's just physically impossible. Our ancestors were little little tribes dotted here and there, running around, and 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 these they have to appreciate the scale of this event. This wasn't just a you know a little endangered species here and a rainforest there. It wasn't like that. It was th these animals owned this planet. Th mm -hmm. their, their combined mass was possibly more than the combined mass of all humans and all of their livestock. Put together, it was most of the animal mass on the planet of, of, of the large animals. That statement, I, I'll have to check, but it was something like that. It was, it was enormous how, many, how, how much animal biomass disappeared, just went poof over the span of a very short time geologically speaking. And, and again, our dating and timing is we don't really know. When, when well, there's a, it's also like there are plenty of animals, right? There's plenty of animals, a lot of animals, herds of buffalo. Like, it's not that animals as a whole, like humans didn't eat everything in sight. Like, for some reason, it was the large ones specifically that disappeared. And the humans overlapped with them for many years. It, there's been many glaciation periods. Like, these are very unsatisfying answers. Yeah. Now, these previous glaciations, previous ice ages... The, the four main ones are the last one, 10, 10 12,000 years ago, 18,000. One before that, about 120,000. One before that, about 120,000. So at the current thinking at the moment is they were kind of evenly spaced every 100, 120,000 years. And there was four main ones. But then other people have been adding a lot of little ones, which we don't really need to go into. 
But the, the interesting thing is, is that during those three previous main ice ages, which span the, which, which, I gotta, uh, as, all right, so I gotta clarify something really quickly. So the word ice age is different than glacial period, right? So an ice age consists of a bunch of different glacial periods, oh. and glacial, the last glacial period ended about fifteen thousand years ago, and it looks like okay. the glacial periods happen. Uh, I'll get back to you on that. But the the ice ages are this completely these bigger chunks of several glacial periods, which is kind of confusing. Okay, Anyways, now, go ahead. Now, okay, I'm glad you said that because um, I'm using Ice Age because it's colloquial and people know what that means. Right, and I think Anastasia did when she introduced you. I didn't think it had a more rigorous meaning and 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 and, and go into you know definitional lawyering about what we're talking about. So <laughs> we're all about definitions here. So there will be lawyering. Well, it's really confusing. This like threw me off too when I was a kid because I didn't realize there had been so many of these, right? And like the fact it's often thrown around like, oh, we're actually living in an ice age right now, which is true by definition. And it's like okay. it doesn't feel like it's an ice age, and everybody's like, ah, oh, it's global warming. And it's like, well, you know, the Earth's been through some crazy stuff, so. This is just the most recent rendition is we have periodic glacial and interglacial periods. Yeah, I can see where the confusion because different but, people use the term to mean different things. Right. So what you're talking about, the last interglacial period uh, was actually 194,000 years ago and ended 135,000 years ago. Yeah. And then there's this one that ended about 25,000 years. Uh, sorry, ended about 15,000 years ago. So that's the most recent one. Or 12 or 11, 8 or 8,400 8, different people. So yeah. yeah, about every 100,000 years. Gotcha. Roughly. And four of them during, during the age of the, the current definition of the Pleistocene, which also keeps changing. So, mm. so right. shifting definitions, uh, I, I, I land on Ice Age because everybody knows that term. Non-scientists, people that watch movies and things. Yeah, definitely. Means. It means the, the the continents were covered with ice and there was these giant woolly mammoths running around. Yep. That's why I'm trying to talk as far as I can to the common man. Who's, this is not his field. So I'm not, I don't use terms like, what was that? Period. Glaciation period. I think it's just glacial period. Oh, actually. sorry. Glacial period. Not only is he about definitions, <laughs> but he doesn't even use I them correctly. It up to you. All right. So basically, okay. So we have this ice age that, and I think this is called what? The Younger Dryas Ice Age, which is the one that ended about 15,000 years ago. Uh, it's more like 9,000. I think that was a, 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 a redux, a, a slight repeat of the ice age that had already ended. It was starting to warm. Oh, interesting. Cooler for a little bit, and then it, and it continued to warm. Uh, so I see. It's like a little blip. Bringing those things in too. It, uh, here's the thing: the problem with this problem, the interesting fact about this uh, topic we're on, is that there are so many aspects to it, and different. Like you, you rattle off a bunch of fields, oh, geology, and this and that, and the other, and it's so easy to go down all these other paths and add and add and add and add and so trying to just strip it down to the really things that count is what i was focused on in this essay everything is the pieces are pretty short but everything in them builds to what i'm to the theory there's a reason for everything in there and so right well we could talk about you know this little thing over here well can you just summarize the theory for everybody just so okay so the theory is and that 
you know, the earth has been getting colder and the Pleistocene marks the beginning of the ice ages, ice ages, or you could call the Pleistocene the ice age, but it, it was, it's been up and down. It's been, it'll freeze for thousands of years and huge glaciers, ice caps cover the continents and with which Antarctica is still like that now, but the ice cap, the ice sheets used to go all the way down to pretty much Seattle and, and all of Europe, most of Europe, and you know, there, there were massive, massive ice sheets. All of Canada was an ice sheet, and then and then it'll recede. The Earth will warm up. Well, there and it's happened four times in the last, I don't know, a million years. Say, doesn't matter. And during those, during the first three, there were animals that went extinct, big animals that went extinct, but not very many. It was it was a little bit here and a little bit there. So the, the, all of these, the megafauna, the big animals. They didn't all go extinct in this last ice age, but I'd say 95% of them did. Which is kind of a crazy thing, right? Because it's like, why? But the other 5% that went extinct before, they were almost like the, the leaders, if you will, into the grave. So there were other big animals, successful animals, been around for millions of years, that went extinct in the three prior ice ages. So they're like the precursors. So they're telling us that, yes, there were, there were conditions that were almost bad enough, almost bad enough, almost bad enough, and then absolute disaster. So is there, is there something about those large, the ones that went extinct first, that you can sort of, that, that differentiates them from the 95% or? Boy, that's a great question. I wish I, I, I haven't. I, I would, All right, well. Let's hear the theory, though. I want to hear the theory, like. Let's get the theory out, like summarized on the table. Okay, so the theory is that in addition to the fact that the, the massive ice caps, the Earth, the carbon dioxide level of the Earth's atmosphere has been decreasing throughout the entire history of the Earth. That we pretty much know. And it wasn't until the Cambrian that the, the CO2 level came down. It has to be below about five to ten thousand parts per million before an animal can breathe it otherwise they suffocate <laughs> yeah that's why there couldn't be land life during the cambrian because the atmosphere was unbreathable for animals even though that oxygen this is like a billion this is like a billion and a half years ago like really really long time ago. cambrian and a half, yeah a billion, a billion years five ago, it was okay. suffocating atmosphere million. 560 million years ago millions okay starting of the Cambrian. Again, these are all peer-reviewed years. I, I long, long time ago. Hasten to remind you, each one of them. So that's just something I slipped in there. <laughs> A little snark. So what happened? When it was. So the point is, we do know that the Earth used to have a lot, like 10% of the atmosphere. And it's been falling ever since with ups and downs. So by the time we got to the Pleistocene, the Ice Ages, it had dropped down to maybe 300 ppm. But then during those, all three of those ice ages, the, 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 the carbon dioxide level dropped down even further. Down so it's interesting because like if you're, um, if you're looking at the Cambrian, it looks like the sort of the peer-reviewed numbers, the fact that there's about 4,000 ppm during the Cambrian mm -hmm. down to about 180 parts per million during the Quaternary glaciation. Yes. And that was in the last 2 million years though, but we're talking about like, so the, the transition 
that we're talking about here is is an even later transition. And Much so mostly. there's been low carbon dioxide concentrations basically for the last two million-ish years, right? Because if you go all the way back to the dinosaurs, you have this sort of tropical earth, uh, ginkgo growing in the Arctic, yeah. crazy things. Crazy, giant trees and all that, yeah. Right. And so, but there is something that happens during the last glaciation where the creatures die off but is it selectively too? Is, selectivity is what makes it so intriguing. Right. It's just certain ones that, that were most vulnerable. And, and I, as I mentioned in the paper, it's like you'd think when it gets cold, the biggest animals would have the best chance to survive because, you know, surface or volume, you know, ratio. Yeah. It was the biggest animals were the most vulnerable. So it mm-hmm. could have just been the cold itself. Mm hmm. So, but during each of those four, we'll just talk about the four main ice ages or glaciation events over the past million years. It's actually been 10 of them. A few, there's 10, there's 20. Yeah, which paper do you want to cite, right? (laughs) It's a moving target. So So what happened? So during each each of the four main ones that I'm going to say were, never mind the little ones, the the CO2 level dropped on those too. Yeah. It, there's a correlation between a, a ice cap over a continent and a drop in CO2. And I think the reason is simple. The, the reason is simple is because the CO2 comes from the land. It's, it's from decaying plants and stuff. So, you know, each year, you know, the plants all die and they, they, in the fall and, and then they decay and that releases CO2. But if that winter, an ice cap just came over that, you've just lost a CO2 source. So I think the ice cap itself had something to do by covering the land and preventing the escape of CO2. That, 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 it was a, a, a synergetic, a, whatever the word, combined event where, where, not really combined, that's not the right word, but the ice cap itself had, had something to do with the um, drop in CO2. And I think that's why we see such a strong correlation there where, where when you have the bigger the ice cap gets, the lower the CO2 goes. Mm-hmm. So the previous three ice ages, and this is again another contention. Well, this ice, this ice cap, the Wisconsin actually went further than the, you know, uh, I forget all these names. It, it, the, the ice ages have names to them. Mm-hmm. And, oh, well, this ice cap was bigger. That one, that was not as bad. But so I, there, there is a little bit of circular reasoning to this. And I say, well. How do I know that th- this last drop was the largest? Well, because when that's when the most of the animals died. Well, why did the most of the animals die? Because this was the largest drop. So it's, it's there's it's not a fully closed argument. Mm-hmm. Circularity there, okay? Because and again, it depends on whose chart you look at. Different ones. There's different. I've looked at lots of them for paleo CO two and paleo this and that and the other. And and there's all the how many ice ages were there and so it it's a fuzzy picture we don't but the line between the fall of carbon dioxide and the death of megafauna is unclear at this point and you make it very clear in your piece which is the fact that it has to do with the success of plant life yeah and the energetics of large animal consumption Yes, and, and, and very, very specifically because of the types of photosynthesis used by different types of plants. 
So awesome. this is a this is a biochemical argument. So like if you if you could summarize it in like I, I know that you wrote seven blog posts about this, which are fantastic and everyone should go read them. But in a in a single sentence. In a single sentence, when there are two types of plants that matter. We'll call them C3, C4. C4 is very recent. It's only been around a few million years, and yet today. 39% of the vegetation biomass on land is a C4 plant, like corn and sugar. C3 plants, all the trees are C3 plants, all the trees, and most, most they are the, by far the greatest variety. So there's these two types of plants, and this is not one sentence unless you leave the periods out. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened was, as the CO2, because there are these two different types of plants, the C4 is much more efficient at pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere to the point where if you have two of them growing together, the C4 plant and you drop the CO2, the C4 plant will suck so much carbon dioxide out of the air that the C3 plant will be starved to death. So they're in low CO2, it's the, the C4 plant is the mortal enemy of the C3. And another thing we know about the Ice Age it was the time of the, the greatest extent of C4 plants. Mm. And it, what's neat about it is it doesn't matter when it was, but we, we can tell very exactly what was there in this stratigraphic layer, what type of plant, because these two types take up carbon isotopes in different ratios. And then the animal that eats the plant inherits that carbon ratio. There's carbon-12, which is the main carbon, but there's another stable isotope, carbon-13. There's the unstable carbon-14 used for C-14 dating, but that doesn't matter here. It's irrelevant. What matters mm. is these two stable isotopes, of which carbon-12 is by far, you know, 99% of it. But then this, and, and, and what happens is the C-4 plant use, will take in more or less, I forget, I think it's more carbon-13, whereas a C-3 plant will reject it. So the plant itself ends up with this ratio of carbon. And then the animal that eats it ends up with that same ratio in its bones. So you can tell what was the diet of that animal. Did it eat C3 plants like trees and grapes, and nuts, and things like this? And, and some grasses like wheat, which is C3. A lot mm -hmm. of grasses are still C3, but a lot of grasses are C4. And it, if an animal like a bison eats a C4 plant and you can tell in their bones. So when the prairie, the, all the prairies are covered with C4 grasses, and as this carbon dioxide dropped, that the range of those C4 prairies expanded out. In Australia, it was almost the entire continent was C4 grass at the course mm -hmm. of the ice age. So it that does give another that to that circular argument. Well, was the worst that actually adds another? Well, yeah, because that was the greatest range of C4 plants. Why would they have the greatest range? Because the carbon dioxide dropped enough to make them more competitive. They had a competitive advantage over the C3 plant. When you get out along the coast, the C3 plant can still hang on because you're getting air coming in off the ocean that hasn't been robbed of CO2 yet. That's why the interior C4 of a continent, all continents today, and the, the outer perimeters are lots of C3 plants. You don't see a lot of C3 plants in the interiors of continents to this day. 
And to bring this back to the question of megafauna, there is a difference in the kind of caloric intake you can get from grass versus, you know, the examples that you give are wheat and nuts and acorns. And these are very, very calorically dense substances. And so the idea, as far as I can tell, is that there was a shift in the caloric availability on the surface of the earth due to a fall in carbon dioxide, which then caused the death of the megafauna because they were unable to accumulate sufficient caloric input mm-hmm. yes. in, in their rangelands, basically. Yes, in their range. Because as the CO2 drops, both types of plants slow down their growth. Neither one of them is operating optimally. For a C3 plant, it wants, it wants 800 ppm or more. C4, it wants 400 ppm. By the way, to, to take this theory even further, which I did mention in it, is that right now today, we just crossed, we just a massive historic crossing point at 400 ppm, which is where we're at right now. As we speak, we, we brought it up from 280 pre-industrial up to 400. Past 400, C3 plants now have the advantage. Hmm. Isn't that amazing? This is the first time in millions of years that a C3 plant has the advantage over a C4 plant. And what that means is things like corn production are going to flatline. Because once the CO2 goes over 400 ppm, the C4 plant can't take in anymore it's it's running at its max it can only- all right you heard it here folks we're, we're getting into like the predictive qualities of this theory all good scientific theories have to have predictions that they're making and so all right prediction so, number so one so you- corn will flatline corn will flatline all right, so, so you call ha- c4s the vacuum the co2 vacuum cleaners of the world basically the- my question yeah who, who so who so is that what the uh what were the megafauna eating C3s or C4s? Mostly C3. It was big C3 browsers. Um, except, and I use the giraffe. You know, there are some that still survive. All, like all of those elephant-type animals and the mammoths and stuff. Those and You can tell the, the food in their mouth. Those are C3 plants. That's what they ate. So anything that ate a C3 plant was at risk. Mm. But... What what's even like the bison? I use that example because there used to be five different kinds of bison here in North America, and and the biggest ones were gigantic. They're like two or three times the size of the one that we know. But when the carbon dioxide goes down low enough, the C four plants are also competing because as the wind goes across and a plant takes that CO two, the next plant over isn't going to get as much. Mm-hmm. So you think the C fours were eating up all the C threes? food basically yes and were the megafauna why did like what was unique about this last glaciation period that didn't occur previously that's a good question and and that's that's that tautological question the co2 level fell just enough further it was like a threshold sort of situation or something it was it was and we know that it was a threshold because in the three previous there were already events like this happening. It was mm. right on the edge, right on the edge, right on the edge, and then it went over the edge. Mm-hmm. I could see that. So, what is the? Why did the? So, and then, and then you, uh, you kind of make this claim at the very end of your theory uh, that this was sort of 
from like a Gaian perspective, this was actually, this is what the planet needed right now as a whole. Can you, can you put that in your own words somehow? <clears throat> yeah. Well, looking at all these different events of the history of life on earth, there's, there's this um, pattern to it of planning, <laughs> precognition, um, planning for the worst, like C4 plants. They came along, the atmosphere was over 800 ppm. There was no reason to have a C4 plant. There was no reason to, to invent, create, or whatever word you care to use that type of photosynthesis. It had no competitive advantage. So it, you know, it's, again, it's, it wasn't survival of the fittest. It was survival of a, the incompetent. Abundance for all. <laughs> so why did it come around? And yet a few million years later, all of a sudden it was needed because the C3 plants could not, it was not needed. It was, it became competitive long after it came into the world. It became very competitive. And finally it ended up dominating the biomass during the ice age. And it's still 39, 40% of all the plants on land are C4 plants still. So when you say, yeah, we're still in an ice age. Yeah, we are. And that's, that to me is the key indicator. How many C, how much C4 plants are there? Which, by the way, that as an aside, this idea, this C4 photosynthesis is a recent discovery relatively. I don't know exactly, but I think about 30 years or less. So it's not that well known. So cool. So then the humans come along, right? And we start just cranking carbon into the atmosphere and the C3 plants are like, thank you. Yes, yes, I have, I have a list, which is another other science article, which I keep meaning to finish and post, and maybe, maybe this will inspire me to finish it. Do it. The signs, the signs for us to look for, I, I wrote them out as little mnemonic devices, however you pronounce that. It's like, please to see. Um, wall of green. Um, you look at a tree now, like especially in places like Portland or Seattle, where see a tree, you know, the sun, it goes in an arc over the day and a tree, it puts a leaf out to catch as much sun as it can. And there's, there's some plants that, that turn it like a solar, you know, they can do that. Most plants can't. So the tree has to arrange its leaves in such a way that it maximizes how much sunlight it can intercept from this moving target during the course of a day. So it has to, you know, put them in different orientations. And of course, a leaf pointing that way isn't going to get when in the morning and then a leaf pointing. It. So they're only good for a certain part of the day. So a plant, a plant is an extremely intelligent thing in this regard, how it can build, make its structure in a way that optimizes the, the solar intercept, how much energy it can pull from the sun. Because that's the other That's what it needs. Yeah, it needs water. CO2 and sunlight and warmth. Those are four things and then vitamins and things like that. But those, those, all four of those things have to be there, of which water and CO2 are equivalent in, in, as far as their uptake. One water molecule, one CO2, one for mm -hmm. one, right? That's what a plant is built out of, water and CO2 in a one-to-one -one ratio. They're equally important. So anyway, 
the the trees today you can look in this winter now but you can look in the summer and their shadow is completely black mm. at different times of day which means they're putting out so many leaves they're intercepting all the sun that hits them regardless of the time of day and i've i have it's hard to quantify too hard to um research because there's not a lot of data on previous shadow coverage of plants oh okay. imagine that's hard that's a hard thing to find in the geologic record it is i've, I've looked in the photographic record right sure. old photos i don't find trees like this the trees are bushier and bushes too they're much more solid that's one i call that uh, blackout which is the shadow that has to at least be partially due to the fact that there have been enormous plant breeding programs that have basically decided what they like aesthetically. Like most, I, I didn't really actually know this, but there's this guy whose name I cannot remember right now. It starts with a B, but he's basically Burbank. Burbank, exactly. Burbank is responsible for like most of the plant varietals that we see around us today that nobody has any idea that this guy was basically the like Frankenstein of plants. And nobody knows how he did it, even though he said how he did it. You know how he did it? He told us. Well, it was just mutagenesis, I thought. He just, like, irradiated. Huh. Ah. <laughs> no, he said it. I've read him. He said it very explicitly. Like how he invented the, uh, the spineless cactus. Which is? He talked to it. He talked to it. That's amazing. He talked to it. He said. Well, he did also irradiate it. He told us how he did it. I don't. I don't believe he used radiation. Really? Yeah, I don't think so. He used hybridization. He talked. Interesting. He had it in his greenhouse there in uh, Santa Barbara or wherever, and he and he'd come along every day, and he and he'd pet it, and and pull some of the spines off and say he'd say, "There, there, you're safe here. You don't need these. I love you. I'll take care of you." And he wrote that in, and he meant it, and he did it for other things too. Huh? You know, I've been trying that with a, with a house plant that I have very nearly murdered, and it has not been working. So this is an end of one, an a lifetime of, of abuse. Maybe it takes. You're not Luther Burbank, okay? No, I'm not. So now I'm not saying it's true that that's how he did it. I'm saying that's how he said he did it. Sure, right yeah, yeah, yeah. And okay, but and the, the other thing, nobody's been able to replicate him. This is like this shooting star that came and went and, and never again seen. You see this occasionally in science. Like there's this thing in, in, in laboratory experimental science that you find people that are said to have good hands, quote unquote. And this, so, and this is such a common thing where you find someone who is capable of doing a technique or, or accomplishing something. And even though they write it all down and it's in their lab notebooks and they tell you how to do it, somebody else comes along and tries to do the same thing. And they don't have that combination of, you know, monastic devotion and intuition and technical ability that it just, these people are, you know, one in a million. It's the anthropomorphic field. Well, it's actually, it's really interesting. So we recently watched a, uh, we watched a documentary on the way that electromagnetic waves affect uh, water. Uh, yes. Yeah. And so it was, the, it was basically this, this video, uh, Luc Montagnier, who's this uh, French Nobel Prize winner for HIV. Okay. 
He's now running a lab where he basically believes in the memory of water, where you can take, uh, you can you can put a DNA molecule into water, allow it to affect the water molecules, make a recording of that electromagnetic effect, send it to a different laboratory, and also have known as the CD, also known as the CD, audio wave yeah, exactly. File. They send like a wave file to a different laboratory. Yeah. And then that laboratory is supposedly able to reconstruct the DNA molecule from a tube of water. And this is and like homeopathy. This is homeopathy, and it's it's Rupert Sheldrake's morphic field. Unfortunately, that is the only lab in the universe that can do that effect. And only, only one gentleman, the technician in that lab, is the only man. Even if everybody follows this protocol, they can't do it. Okay. So, uh, oh, so make of it what you will. Right. I know. It, it, these are mysteries, and we don't have all the answers to everything, never will. But we, we want to look at this and ask the question openly without just being, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist or, you know, you right on spooks in the woodwork and whatever. Yeah, there's all kinds of weird stuff. So, but so I'm just, this. I'm just a tourist. I'm going along and go, wow, look at just that. Look at that. Look at that. Okay, so you you look into the record and you're like, okay, so plants and trees and bushes are are more verdant now than they were. And so one possible explanation is that they've been bred to be so. Another possible explanation is the fact that the increase in carbon dioxide yeah. is helping them be bushier. And I, I am inclined to agree with you on that because there has been evidence of the fact that tree cover around the world is actually increasing. Massively. That, that's from satellite data. Right. And one estimate is like 73% since the start of the industrial revolution. Revolution and all they're doing is measuring leaf coverage. What we were just talking about with the intercept, they're measuring the leaf coverage from space, and and that's a very that's a pretty clean data set. I mean, hydroponic uh, produce growers blow carbon dioxide on their plants to make them bushier. I think it's pretty well determined. It's sure it works. Very well known, yeah, yeah, very well known that it, it's it's essential. So, but yeah, the leaf, the satellite leaf coverage. So these other signs are the, the increase in growth rates of trees. Another one I call exploding stumps, is which is like here in the Northwest, we have these big leaf maple. You cut the stump. And it used to be when I was a kid, you cut a stump on a maple tree. That's it. Bye. Done. But now these suckers explode out of that. That's why I call it exploding stumps. But mm. like bamboo level rates of growth, rates of growth. Red alder is another one. These these trees are growing taller, faster, and they're 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 they're. I've seen growth rings like this, mm. okay, like this, like on a redwood here in Seattle. There in Seattle, I mean, not in Seattle. All right, I mean, just massive rates of growth. That you look at the old old growth wood, and the the grain is very tight. The you know for year to year. Yeah, like if you go to the Muir Woods, they have that slice of the tree, and like somewhere in the tree is like the year Jesus is born, and then I think it goes like all the way back to like ancient Roman times. But those are very, very thin, thin. like pencil thin rings. So you're saying that in redwoods that are recent cuts, you see larger growth rings in all all species. Interesting. Uh, I, I, I I've seen poplar trees uh, two feet around the base, and I count I go around and count the rings. And they're like, you know, 15 years old, mm. 70 feet tall. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. We were talking about dating methods earlier, and I came across the notion the other day that they actually use tree rings in succession to date back something like 10,000 years into the past. 
like we were saying like when did this actually happen well they'll like take a tree they'll line up the rings from it to like its earlier generation and then they'll do this all the way back to these like ancient timbers that they find in these uh you know yes old but, digs and yes but it's the yeah it's dendrochronology and one you are not allowed to have access to that data to check their results you me not even me not even <laughs> not even dr hot eyes <laughs> <laughs> well we'll have to look into that which is already a massive red flag oh uh, that's one two that's a red flag because I, I can't we, we can't verify that claim two there's what's called floaters which are sequences in the data like if you have a log that's got 300 rings in it you, you, you've got a sequence, but then you don't have the one before, and you don't have the one after. So it's floating in time. It, it mm. tells you the climate of that, those 300 years, but where were those 300? When were those 300 mm. years? So there's missing links. So there's missing links. Yes, that's a better word for it. There's missing links. There's a thing called the Roman gap, which which is a, about 1,000 years worth of missing link. Huh. Really? Yeah. Write that down for later. Yeah, we got to look into this. We're working on a movie about about missing time in geologic history right now. You're you're preaching to the choir. I study these, these things too. Yeah. So yeah, the eighty chronology is a little sketchy. If you ever go to, I mean, these are these are best guesses, right? Like people, yeah. and they like cross correlate them with other methods, right? Like that's kind of that's the defensibility of of some of this dating, at least at least in the recent past. Is they're like, well, we'll do like twenty different methods, and they kind of agree. And, there's one, there's, there's, yes, there's, it's one thing to say, oh yes, it's, it's our best guesses and we're all jolly good fellows. It's another thing to hide the data. <laughs> well, this that's is an, true. Yeah. I mean, like that's access to data problem. is a huge problem. And this is like one of the biggest places where science is really going through a hard reckoning, right? Because it's like, it is. you, there was, like I saw an article today about the fact that some pediatric brain tumor study had to retract the results because of the fact that the way that they had treated the data was not robust. It's like, it's just a constant thing that people are constantly finding that they're like, ah, oh, well, we did some statistical stuff here and some statistical stuff there. Like, we're trying to interview this woman who studies the microbiome and she's a philosopher of science. And it was really interesting because we had a pre-show meeting with her and she was basically like, look, the microbiome studies are not as robust as you think they are. And we were both kind of just like, what are you talking about? That's not possible. And then she sent us all of these papers. And it's just paper after paper after paper that has made conclusions about links between microbiome and obesity, autism, depression. results. And it's like... Well, not only that, but they're just like, you know overhandling their statistical analyses and i mean the the very common mistake that was found in a bunch of papers was that they would transplant uh fecal matter from humans into into these immune deficient mice and then they would basically count each one of those mice as a replicate in the experiment but in reality they'd only used one donor from a human or like two donors right so the real replicate size should be like two and so like all the effects basically vanished biologists not statisticians not not good math people. Not good math people, generally. The the third problem, the, there was the, the, the floater, the missing link problem. Uh, I forgot what the first problem was. Oh, the, the, the missing data problem. <laughs> yeah. And the, the, the third... How to get it. Huh? Yeah, we, yeah, like how to get a hold of the data. You can't get the data. And the, thir the third problem is, 
and this is more to do with just the vagaries of, of the of the way plants grow is yeah you can you can have this this log and that tells you what the climate was where that tree lived and the, its immediate environs but it doesn't tell you about the next valley over and so what they they get these different logs and, and timbers and things like this and tree logs and whatever and from different places and then they're trying to correlate the ring sequences between the different trees and now it gets into statistical massaging um there's there's a, a degree of subjectivity into how you match these these two different ring sequences do they really match here uh, okay if you really want them to match maybe they do you know yes, how bad do you want it yeah 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 so it's it has that when's that next grant cycle you know yeah so it's 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 also those all these dating techniques we have they all have this this uh, uh, deep time is hard deep time is really time really is hard really right hard. like and when you, you know, when you start to look into uh, ice cores and you start to look into rock cores, all those, <laughs> it, it gets really, it gets really, really difficult to be able to say something robust. And when you start exploring how do they come to say the things that they say, yeah. it becomes, you, you basically have to get a master's level or a PhD level understanding and, and read a tremendous amount in order to be able to understand the rationale behind the methods that they use, which is why it's difficult to have a conversation about, hey, is this a good method or is this not a good method? Because who outside of the field has the time to be able to really explore, understand, and then critique the approaches that are being used? And that's just, that's just baked into all of science at this point. It's very, very hard to evaluate super complex methods that have been built you know like the data for a lot of this stuff that established the methods was was collected in the 50s and 60s there was this golden age an explosion of methods you know radiometric dating probably dendrochronology like all of these techniques that were used to be able to say stuff about the natural world had this moment of blossoming and now they're kind of they're they're accepted and what are you going to and so challenging them is difficult because of the nature of institutions, right? Like if you're, I, they're all like sort of built to, they're all built in support of one another too. It's difficult because the, the biggest argument that they have in their favor is that, Hey, we all agree. All these methods agree with one another. Um, but of course, like they're incentivized for them to all agree in the first place. And like, there's a lot of relative, there's a lot of relative comparisons where you have like a known age sample, which is compared to these. And it's like, well, how do you know that age sample? And they're like, well, we use this other known thing. And yeah. it's like, it just it, gets it, into it's a circular. Yeah. It's a circular argument. But it, we're going to get to the bottom of it. We're going to do like a serious movie on radiometric dating and all these. Rel we're going to get there. We're actually meeting with a geologist after we get off the phone with you oh. at this dude at Cornell who teaches radio radiometric dating. Yeah. So we're going to pick his brain and we're not going to stop till we make sense of this. So yeah, we'll come back to that later. Yeah, C fourteen is there's there's all I'm sure you've read some of the problems with that. Well, they just updated it. They just added five thousand years onto all C fourteen data, from what I can tell. There was like a Nature paper that came out la last year, two years ago. So it's 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 on the move. And next year they'll also track another ten, and it's it's yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a moving target. But it, ha it it has to be because it has to be. <laughs> yeah, we don't know. So. Uh, okay, well. To continue, to continue, to continue, exactly. So we basically have this wall of green. We, oh, you're back, back to the predictive uh, uh, 
features and uh, why it's important to understand these things. Because yeah, corn's going to slow down. Trees are going to get bigger. Matters. Yeah, mm-hmm. future matters, right? And, and you want to show up for that. So what's it going to be like? Yeah, the, it, the, the ecosystem shifts ah, ah, all over the world due to the, the, that relative uh, competitive advantage between C3 and C4 plants and now the, the accelerated growth of C3 plants. C, C4 plants are all of the C4 plants. Remember that that's not just corn. That's 40% of the entire biomass on earth mm. land is now running at its maximum limit. It cannot increase any further beyond that. Because that, it, 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 But the C3s can. They, you think they can sort of... Yeah, so they're going to just take off, take all the sun space, basically, and a, then nobody did nothing to eat for the, for the little guys on the ground, basically. Well, they're not so little back that's, then. That's another thing that's happening, the, the dark cave. Like when you have a, the, the tree canopy gets so dark, it becomes like a cave underneath. That's a shift in the ecosystem where before the sunlight, more of it could get to the forest floor when you have a closed forest canopy. And, and nowadays, just looking along the freeways here and you see these evergreens that are not very old, you know, right? they're like 30 years old and they're so interlocked and intertwined that, that it's just a cave underneath. Them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's actually places around here where you, you go out and they're like, you can see the little oaks like underneath, like kind of dying off. You know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about? Well, yeah, it's a transitional ecosystem. Like as, as the canopy closes... And it depends on what kind of forest you're in, right? So, like, the the Russians have a saying, um, and I might get this wrong, but a redwood forest is a forest that you pray in. A pine forest is a forest that you celebrate in. And a fir forest is a forest that you hang yourself in. <laughs> really, really Russian. Freaking Russians, man. Brutal. <laughs> And then we drink. You, know? <laughs> you drink before you hang yourself, I think. <laughs> but that's to say that like it gets dark. These like evergreen forests that are along the roads, they're mostly fir plantations. They're Douglas fir, they're noble fir. And those things I'm old enough to remember I'm old. The forests before when I was you know, in the sixties in Portland. It wasn't like that. So, I mean, we need the old photographs because, it, it, yeah, it was dark under the trees, but it wasn't like pitch black. Hmm. All right. Like the Tillamook Burn. Are you guys from Portland? We were there for a while. Yeah. The Tillamook Burn, all the trees burn, and these new ones grew up just like they do now, but it, it never got so dark. So, and, and again, back to the satellite data is pretty objective stuff, right? Right. So the canopies are. You just got a meter that's bouncing out in for, you know, reading the infrared off of that. And it, it, with the leaf coverage is increased. That, that one, we can start right there because that's agreed to by mainstream. And this is all like part of like a feedback cycle in your conception. It's like at some point, like it's sort of in this weird balance, but then it's just like once it goes past some threshold, the C3s just take over. They squash out all the C4s and then the big animals are just like, what's for breakfast? And there's nothing, right? Something like that. Yeah, not not quite that drastic. Okay, okay. I mean, you're taking it to the limit. But if you look at the the, the growth rate charts of the two types of plants, it's very interesting. I'll try to do it. Let's see. I would go like this. Does that look right for your graph? Mm-hmm. Okay. 
the the C4 plant at zero at zero CO2, nothing can live. <laughs> no plants can survive. But at only 20 ppm, C C4 plants can there's enough molecules that they can sift them out from all the other ones and use them to build their structure. They're very efficient. Super efficient. Incredibly. They could suck a gas out of the atmosphere to that down to 20 ppm. Got it, got it, got it. Yeah, but the, the, and as you raise the ppm level, that's what this is. No, it's, no excuse me. The horizontal is raised the ppm level from zero to you know a high number. So at 20, C4 plant starts to grow. And, and and when you when you get up to 400 ppm, it th that curve it flattens out dead flat. Mm. It, it just goes up 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 and then flat lines at 400 ppm, which is where we are right now. That's why. So the and the C threes are are totally happy with it, that it, level, but yes. but they're but they're it goes like this. It probably has a flat line up there somewhere, but I don't even know where it is. It, it just keeps going up up up. So so when it, at 400 ppm where the C four flat lines. C3 just as as you increase mm. carbon, it just keeps growing faster and faster and faster. Whereas C4, that it that's a maximum growth rate. It stops. It can't go. It can't grow any faster. And the big animals are eating the C4s. Am I correct? Some, some, some of the big animal, the one most of the ones that died were C3. They were eating. Oh, then I'm then I'm totally confused. Okay, so okay, so C4 is grassland. C4 yeah. is the stuff that's on the ground. Yeah. And so you have this, you have, uh, and Forrest, make sure that I'm, that I'm retelling this correctly, yeah, yeah. that I'm recapitulating this. So you have a historical decrease in CO2 levels, right? During these glaciations. During these, and so you get to a point where CO2 falls to a critical point, and the big plants, the C3s, mm -hmm. can no longer grow. Like, look right, at right, this right, graph right, that's right in that, front of us, right? That, yeah. And what proliferates is the C4 plants, the grasslands. And that's the condition that we're in right now, mm -hmm. where you have a large majority of grasslands that do we're not support large animals. Like, but we're, we're, glacial period or not. But they died right after the glacial period. Yes. The, the large animals. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and, the, and be, that's because the vast majority, and this is what Forrest was saying, is that the vast majority of the flora at the time of the glaciation was these C4 plants. And that partially makes sense because if you have a decrease in, um, if you have a decrease in precipitation, what you're going to grow is you're going to grow grassland because you have to have a one-for-one one carbon dioxide water relationship. So even if you have carbon dioxide but you don't have water, you can't run photosynthesis efficiently. And so these plants that are down close to the ground that don't need as much water and are more efficient at taking carbon dioxide out of the air proliferate. But they don't have as many calories in them. You don't get nuts. You don't get fruits. So off the glacial of those. periods were really hard on the big animals. That's yes, that's fine. But there was lots of glacial periods that weren't hard on them. There was a corresponding decrease in carbon dioxide fall during this last glacial period. That's the point. It's not the glaciation. It's the fall in carbon dioxide. Is that correct, Forrest? You beautifully put everything you said. It doesn't seem to be much lower than the rest. And the, the, the thing that uh, Shiloh is reacting to is the fact that we've pulled up this composite CO2 record for the last 800,000 years. And if you look at the composite CO2 record for the last 800,000 years, the level of carbon dioxide, the, the, the decrease in carbon dioxide levels at the end of the last glaciation does not appear to be significantly lower than any other time prior. In the previous three, the, that one, the 180 ppm. 
Yes, it it goes down to 180, basically 800,000 years ago, 700,000 years ago. And then it stays kind of, uh, it stays maybe around one, uh, let's say like 200. Yeah. This is the most recent one. Yeah. So like it it definitely dips down to like 190, but it's been there below. 10 times in the last million years. That's what he's trying to say. According to that graph that you pulled up. Which is ju- ice core samples from the last eight hundred thousand years? Do you have Do you have a different set of data that shows that it hasn't? Different ones. Yeah, yeah. This again is is another fuzzy area where yeah, there's lots of there's lots of these charts. I've looked at lots of these charts. I've also looked at how the ice core data is is uh, theorized. When we say, "Oh, there's these massive data sets," and they all agree, I always look at the core assumptions first of of the theory. Okay, you assume that all, all the trees in an area all had the same growth rings and all the all the carbon-14 decays at the same rate. You know, the core assumptions underneath there, that, you know, the, the beginning, start there. Well, for the ice cores, that 800,000 number is extremely suspect because the for numerous reasons, which I won't go into here, but because we're, I don't know how much longer you can go. But th- that's another dating method that's that's very very um, shaky. Very- well, so the question, the, the, I think that we have to ask whether or not we can accept. There's an axiomatic assumption of this theory, and the axiomatic assumption is the fact that the ice core data, or not the ice core data, that the carbon dioxide dipped lower during the last ice age than it had previously, or that it was a cumulative effect. Because what is apparent from the data is that the carbon dioxide levels were uh, not going, they weren't spiking as high in the early part of that million year period. And so there was some sort of cumulative effect going on that there was a triggering point. Right, so you have... You and there was a switch between the C3s and the c is, is the switch between the C3s and the C4s, is that important in your theory? Absolutely. Okay, so there's a switch that kicks over. Yeah. And, and that's the sort of feedback event that I would expect if you have some massive extinction or something that there's there's a switch in the conditions that happens because it's very finely balanced and and at some point it just leans in the other way so what's going on there like you're saying that the big animals were eating mostly the c3s but the c3s are they're the highest are very unhappy in the glacial basically in the glacial periods okay and so for there was basically this this kick over there was no c3s for a while and What's going on right now, though? You're saying that the C3s... Uh, yeah, what's going on to, in this day and age? What are, what's up with the humans? What, how are we involved in this? All right. Uh, uh, we'll get to the humans in a minute. I'm going to finish this thought that of, of the, uh, the ecosystem shift. That's what's going on. At, we're, we're, we're retracing the steps that led to the Ice Age. We're going back the other way, and all the climatologists would agree with that statement, that we're already back to Pliocene. Pre, which is the era before the Pleistocene, we're already back at 400 ppm. We're back to that level. We've risen above, and what is happening? And this is, you know, all those billions they put into you know, studying global warming could put just a little into like what's going to happen to all these ecosystems. And it's not necessarily all good news. The, be, when when the competitiveness between the different types of plants is shifting rapidly, very rapidly, okay. And like I think right now, if you went out and just as an experiment, seeded an area in Kansas that's all prairie grass or cornfield and seeded it with trees, they would grow and you would have a forest in the middle of Kansas where you couldn't have 50 years ago. 
Mm, that's that would be an interesting experiment to plan. So if anyone listening has a plot of land in Kansas, reach out to us. We have some ideas for you. It, it, you know, and and you you did say something, and you can think of it very uh, on a first pass. Tree equals C three, grass equals C four. All right, trees and grass. That's the first iteration, the first order of what we're talking about. Okay, even though wheat is a C three plant, hmm. and and there 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 is one C four tree that's just this stubby little funny tree that grows in Hawaii. It's you know on the grand scale, it's 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 cute, but it's worthless. <laughs> so basically, trees are C threes, grasses are C fours. Right, most grass, not more. Yeah, well, by by mass, most grasses, but there are still C three grasses. But that's okay. a simple way to think of it. Okay, so starting with that, it's okay. As CO two drops, grassland expands, forest decreases. As CO two rises, grassland contracts, forest increases. The crossover point where where they're they're even, Stephen competitors on on the same playing field. With the energy, actually, it is around 400. It's actually a little less than that because a C4 plant needs more energy to run its kind of photosynthesis. It needs more sunlight than a C4, than a C3. Hmm. It's actually less efficient, energy efficient. Okay, so but it's around. It's around where we are right now. Is this crossover where the forest land has a competitive? Oh, another thing we're seeing is uh, arboreal reconquista. That's another one of those. I mentioned blackout and wall of green. Wall of green is all the plants fill in and you can't see through them. One, one layer of trees or bushes, you cannot see through it. It's, it's like a brick wall now these days. Um, Arboreal Reconquista is massive. What's happening in the American Southwest, out in the prairie, you know, uh, what do you call that, scrubland, is we're seeing bushes popping up on the rangelands with the farmers, mm -hmm. the ranchers. And for them, it's an a nuisance to have all these bushes just popping up out of nowhere. Okay, in Idaho, um, uh, they're, they're, the, the, the forest, the trees are taking over the elk grazing land to, 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 to such an extreme that the state is going out and cutting them down. And it's mm. Wisconsin, so you see, you, you're, we're, we're witnessing this in our lives happening. This arboreal reconquista, the trees are taking over the grasslands so we're, we're seeing that shift right now and again you, you think the elk perfect example apparently they don't like to live in the forest i guess mm -hmm. grasslands i don't know much about elk but it, it, the problem has become so extreme that they're they're literally cutting down trees over there just to make more room for elk hunters and elk but mm. the giant elk on the other hand or the giant uh, elephants or something would have loved the trees is, is that the idea um i i don't know uh, like the Irish giant elk or giant deer is called a giant elk too. It, it, it was it was enormous again, bigger than a moose, and it had a range across Eurasia. It's a huge range, but um, I I don't actually know what their diet was. It, it, there's just I don't I don't I haven't researched every last animal here. Mm. I actually know what those animals ate, but yeah, I think those more are more of a forest animal. But for some reason, Idaho, these the elk they have there, there's a big push to stop their range from contracting. I mean, the the question of what the animals ate. So, the the question of what the giant animals ate mm -hmm. is 
pretty relevant because if the giant animals were eating mostly grasses, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then it becomes a hard. It, it, the theory becomes less tenable. Mm-hmm. But this is some. Well, well, no. I mean, like, because if if they prefer the grasses and the grasses are the most abundant, then you wouldn't expect the megafauna to collapse with the abundance of grasses. You would expect them to flourish. And so, and so, well, so if you expect the megafauna to flourish on a grassy planet, then it's a harder it's a harder story to tell why the megafauna go extinct on a planet that's grassy because their food source is most abundant. And so you would expect them to flourish times 10 on a planet that has way more grasses. And so the question of what is it that they ate is relevant for that, but that that's something that, you know, can be reconstructed off of whatever they find in their stomachs, et cetera. Like I know that you mentioned in, in the, um, in the place. We're ultimately trying to say why they died, right? The, The carbon ratio. Yeah, the carbon ratio. And the carbon ratio depends on their diet. And so their diet has to be arboreal rather than grassland in order for the decrease in carbon to cause their extinction. Which might be the case. I don't know. I don't know what these animals are eating. And this is something that we we do. We do know. Okay. Pretty close from their from their carbon ratios. And and that's one thing Oh, that's right. That's what you were Mm. saying is the fact that the bones of the carbon ratio have different C four versus C got it. Got it, got it, got it. C12 versus C13. Got it. You can tell what that animal ate. And this I did go around to a few hundred different types of animals and look at what they ate. Fascinating. Right. Yeah. Okay. Were they they C3 browsers, C3 Mm -hmm. grazers, or C4 grazers? There are no C4 browsers because there are no C4 trees. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I guess, so is there... Is there a type of C three grass that also was replaced? Like because it seems we, like we ah, I wonder if there was a lot of yeah, I don't know enough about the past to know if there was like abundant wheat, but wheat is very calorific. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out what these big animals ate. Sorry, the, 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 the the bison were definite those are uh, like uh holotype or archetypical uh C four grazer. Mm. Almost exclusively. That's what mm-hmm. eat dudes. They still around, right? Yeah, those are C four grazers. Got it. And okay. Look at the way they're built. They're built like like tanks. Or, but yeah, like tanks. But they have to hunch down like this. Mm. So you know they're not. They're not. They can't browse because they can't raise their head. They're only eating short little plants. That's why they're shaped like that. <laughs> right. I just found that the giant elks uh, lived in the woodland environments. So this. I thought so yeah. So I don't know why they have to cut all the trees down to for these other elk. Well, they're a different kind of elk. They're much right. The giant elk were might have had a different niche than these elk because you would expect that there is a differential in the ability to survive, right? We, we've seen the the Natural Geographic with all these giant elk herds going across the prairie. Right. Yeah. The thing you're calling a giant elk, it's actually a deer. Well, it's just a less giant elk, right? Because these things were, I mean... The Irish giant elk is also called the Irish giant deer. Like, they can't figure that's out. That's it. <laughs> we, well, we've gotten into this... We deer like Bambi. I mean, I've seen Bambi. Yeah, exactly. That's a small That's a small one. <laughs> but I don't know that Disney was, was uh, ecologically consistent, but I'll allow it. Well, didn't Bambi live in the forest? I think it did, yeah. And I see deer in I the think forest. Bambi here. like the meadows. Come on. 
<laughs> Bambi seems like a Meadows kind of yeah, guy. Maybe that's the difference between a deer and an elk. A deer lives in the forest, elk lives in the grass. Yeah, maybe. Well, so this is actually interesting because the, the question of speciation, right? So it's like, how do we know that the Irish elk was a different species than the current elk rather than just like a type of elk that was and like what larger. the hell is the species anyways oh, oh let's not let's not do that let's not do that i mean all these fuzzy questions and i point and i keep looking at the picture of the dots i'm trying to connect them well, so what's the human what are the humans doing yeah, that's here right, man that's what's right. going on this is the capstone of the theory yeah, this is the this is the shining uh, gem at the top of the pyramid so we have it's called the eye simplified model we have these four ice ages over the past million years in in the first three we were we were losing animals here just a few but then and then we then we had this massive okay there's three ice ages and we lost a few animals here we lost a few there we lost a few there in the meantime there was the uh these uh proto hominid uh critters running around at the same time and then and, and that, that that second to last one was about roughly a hundred and something thousand years ago, roughly about the time on the mainstream timeline that good old us showed up on the scene, right around that second to last ice age. And then on this last ice age, pow! The you know the the, the all the factors uh, came together to cause this extinction event, and and leaving us standing. So, if you look at that progression, it's almost, 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 and then darn near, near, near catastrophe. And I put a question in there near the very end. Another, another mystery about this is the, the CO2 level dropped and the other conditions of the ice cap, the climate, to cause this massive extinction. Why did the CO2 level only drop to 180? Why not go on down to 140 or 100 or 20? Why did it stop there? That's that's very mysterious. Because if it had gone down just a little bit further, according to the CO2 extension theory, whatever you want to call this, there wouldn't be any more horses and giraffes and elephants, any any C3 browser cows. I don't think I think no cows cows can eat C4. Any animal that has a no, I take that back. But I'm pretty sure cows can eat C3 and C4. I'm not positive. Well, I know that uh, I know that cows eat oak seedlings. Well, yeah. So, so like your your question was before you got off the rails. Why doesn't go lower? And and furthermore, in the very next ice age, which is going to start whenever it feels like it, will it go lower? The very next one, the one that's in the future. Right? Will it go below 180 and take out all that, all at least all that kind of life? How far? And if it does go, how much further does it lower? And we don't know because we don't know where all the CO2 comes from. We know that it goes away. It's it's continuously having to be pulled out of the earth, and and then it it mostly it, you know it either gets buried as sedimentary rock or it drops to the bottom of the ocean floor as ocean sediments so the carbon is continuously falling out of the biosphere so it has to be continuously replaced it's a dynamic system it's not a fixed thing and it, it's constantly having to be renewed and it's been constantly running out and if something isn't done real soon 
it's going to continue running out until there's no life left on the land. And if it, if it, if all the carbon dioxide in the ocean goes away, which would take a lot longer, then there wouldn't be any life in the ocean either. We'd be dead. It'd be gone. So your theory sort of culminates in the idea that the humans have essentially evolved in order to do the job of putting this carbon back up in the air. That claim is put forward. You shouldn't hide from it. It's interesting. It's really interesting. It's, it's kind of buried here, it but fits in the rest of the picture that of this this idea of pre-planning. Why do these things come along, like C four and 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 all the different creatures and and this? Then um, I mentioned those types of invention: invention of the first kind, second kind, third kind. First kind is the creature just appears in the, in the record, also record out of nowhere. No answer, just boom, there it is, right? Uh, you know, ex nihilo, out of nowhere. And inventions of second kind, which is the joining together of two organisms. Then there's inventions of third kind, which is the morphic field again, really. I did point to Shell, I waved at Sheldrake there. And that's what C4 is, because this, this C4 process. It didn't, it didn't radiate out in a tree of life. And oh, it started with one little grass stem and then it made these other ones and its descendants and ancestors. It didn't do that at all. What happened was it was worldwide. A lot of, a bunch of different C3 grasses all of a sudden learned how to do C4. Just, mm. th there was no biological link between these two different species that ended up having the same structural is a complicated structure you can't just evolve it from a molecule it's it's complicated and that's kind of like i think what you mean by this morphic resonance thing and and just this idea that the strategies converge across different but related and similar ecosystems like we like to play with the idea of what of whether there's monkeys like us on other planets yeah. i personally kind of lean towards probably yeah exactly like monkeys happen all the time Maybe even in the deep history of the Earth, you know, like the most popular theory is that the monkeys evolved on the same continent, not us. I'm just talking about monkeys in general. And then they spread out or whatever, or they, they somehow swam across the ocean because it was closer together or something. They ended up in South America. But it's also, you know, we like to toy with the idea. And we had this, uh, we had this multicellular uh, evolutionary biologist on the show the other day. And we're like, well, they could have just evolved this separately like dna might just be the most uh stable confirmation of these molecules it might be just the way life is done you know it might be that c3 to c or c4 uh, adaptation is just the most efficient thing to happen and, and everybody figured it out at the same time because it's the only way things could have gone based off of the actual physical shape of the molecules that are involved and that's kind of a hard thing to consider where we we have this linear track of evolution but it could be that evolution just kind of ratchets over based off of changing conditions in a way that is not you talked about gender chronology being difficult because it's like valley to valley travel of how do you take a timber from this valley and compare it to a timber to this valley but if global co2 levels have changed to a degree that suddenly there's a need for a different approach then you would expect it to happen like a ratchet click as opposed to a a bunch of different approaches that are suddenly tried like maybe the step isn't as far as we think it is, too. So yeah, it's but it's 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 mysterious. We don't we don't really know. 
So that's we don't. It's a hard thing to talk about too. We don't. Right. And they don't know. Anybody says they know, they don't know. <laughs> well, we got stories, right? And like to take it back to the beginning, you know, science is really just a series of stories we tell ourselves. We add those little dots on the map, and we try to connect them better every time. Yeah. But Forrest, I feel like we have been talking to you for a while about this, oh, yeah. and. Honestly, you do so much other cool stuff too. I feel like we should catch up again soon and get deeper into it. You're doing these, you, you, you've got some cool engineering projects. What are, you got these Bishop Cube things. Yeah, that's uh, uh, a shape-shifting machine. Shape-shifting machines. I mean, oh man, like we should, uh, we should, we need to get back together. Okay. But I think we should wrap this down for today. Yeah. It's I, been, a, this is a lot to digest. Uh, want a final thought? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cl- closing thoughts with Forrest Bishop. Closing thought is that the reason this, you know, whether or not we, the theories of the morphic field and the, the, the pre-planning that, that looks like it occurred and the experimentation in the Cambrian and all that, we know that the ecosystem is changing, right, as in our lifetimes and in the future. It's shifting. It's becoming more congenial for trees and less less for grass. And this is going to be a mass and for food protection like corn. It's massive changes are are we're right on the cusp of ecological changes that are absolutely off the radar screens. I think people in like forestry and, and some farmers know about these things, but it's still it's it's not on the radar and it's not in its proper place about what happens when trees can out compete grass and and then all the animals and the whole ecosystem that comes along with that what happens to that area what, what about if you're a real estate developer well i'm gonna i'm gonna put this city here uh in uh kansas even though there's no trees because there's going to be there's a, a, you know across a lot of industries and and just you know just your life in general your backyard it it's important to understand what this rising CO2 does to shift the ecosystem. So there, that, for that reason alone, it's important to, 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 to follow these things, to, to learn more about them any, for anybody, everybody. And then the next question is, how does the ecosystem feedback to affect the glaciation periods or what the heck is going on with that because it's also i mean the reason this even happens in the first place is poorly understood too we don't even know why the ice ages happen right well there's some there's theories (laughs) there's some theories there's some books there's some textbooks there's some concretized theories even some peer-reviewed theories and some not peer-reviewed theories there's like the world is the world is full of them But I think that that is, that's a beautiful place to close. I mean, the, the interplay between the world that we live in and the way that we occupy it and the way that we wish it to be versus the way that it is, is the sort of the central, the central challenge of the human industrial society, right? Because... But this is good news. <laughs> it is maybe because there is a huge push to treat carbon dioxide as being a molecule that needs to be removed from the environment as much as humanly possible. And we need and, water as well, because they're equally important. <laughs> but I mean, there's, I, I think that the, 
the reimagination of the story of the planet that you put forth in the in the Pleistocene murders mm. is a really beautiful one because it gives us a perspective from which we can look at the industrial decisions that the species makes and begin to question the larger impacts that we make, whether or not there are some good things about the industry of the humans that go hand in hand with the challenges. And maybe maybe it can even help people start to think about not CO2 as the one molecule that needs to be removed, but start thinking about all of the other stuff, the stuff that messes with hormones, the stuff that messes with reproduction, the stuff that's made testosterone fall by 20, 30% over the course of the last few decades. Like, there are huge, huge problems from industrial society that have nothing to do with CO2. And if your theory is correct, the CO2 would actually be a net gain because we'd be able to support more human beings on the planet under a higher CO2. And more trees. Well, more trees, more, people more, love trees. more calories, right? Yeah. So it's like, this is, it, it sits at the intersection of so many things. And... <laughs> And so I just want to say thank you for coming by to tell us about it and to sort of to lay it all out for us and to let us, you know, pull on all the threads. So thank you. Yeah, it's been really fun to talk to you. Very welcome. Thanks for having me on. All right. My pleasure. See you later, of course. Yeah, bye.